welcome to the pod. Thanks. No, I was not welcoming you, you stupid imbecile. I know that sounds redundant, but I need to be redundant with you. So otherwise you won't get the lesson, which is that you suck. I was welcoming our gentle and beautiful listeners to the podcast, which is called Product Day Plus. And on the show, sometimes we do projects, sometimes we don't. Most of the time we talk about movies. And I think there's been a podcast where we haven't talked about movies, at least to some degree. Let's just call it a movie show. How about that? Uh, How about the movie show? Yeah, that's the, that's the name of the podcast now. But only inside the podcast. Outside it's called Project A+. Because we don't want to uh, alienate our huge audience, especially the Czech Republic. Hmm. <laughs> Should we start like um, trying to court our Czech listeners? Why? Because of the... There's the um, you know, the charts, the check charts. Mmm, I forgot. <laughs> You're the one who brought this to my attention. <laughs> the check word for hello is apparently A-H-O-J, so... I don't know how to pronounce that. It's like, who murdered uh, his wife and her lover? Ah, O-J. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like... That's how you pronounce it. Um, what's that great band that did that song, Rip It Up? Like, ah... OJ. Mm. <laughs> Is that good? They were known as OJ in America. Really? Most of the, that joke tracks then? No, no, they weren't. Apparently it's pronounced like ahoy. <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, ahoy to all our loyal Czech listeners. <laughs> <laughs> God. This is the best show. This could be our best episode, right? Mm-hmm. Every episode's our best episode. Uh, so what two great films are we going to talk about on today's podcast? Today we'll be discussing, let me just clear the toast crumbs from my mouth. Today we'll be discussing, uh, is it Robert David Mitchell, David Robert Mitchell, Mitchell um, Cameron, Robert? It's David Cameron. It's not David Cameron, I know that, because I made that mistake already. It's Robert Cameron Robert David Mitchell. Mitchell. Robert David Mitchell. Robert David Mitchell? Robert David Mitchell. If I keep saying it, it it'll be true. Robert David Mitchell. Robert David Mitchell. Why, why didn't Robert you David write it Mitchell. down? David Robert Mitchell. David, well, fucking <laughs> David fuck, Robert Mitchell. You that up real you had. David, David Robert Cameron. Mitchell. Who's the guy who directed uh, Short Bus? That's David Cameron Mitchell. Mm. That's why I get confused. No, it's John the Cameron David Mitchell. Mitchell. John Cameron Mitchell. <laughs> Jesus. All right. <laughs> they just Sarah Mitchell and Cameron. And then I guess they have they, three names. <laughs> they go by three names. And they're called Mitchell, so it's an easy mistake to make. Yeah. So and they're both they, American, I guess. Yeah, well, let's double-check that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what film did Mr. David Robert Mitchell uh, direct? Uh, this is his third feature, Under the Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, we will also be discussing uh, some European dudes' <laughs> film. Uh, please, Hola. Jonas Ackerland. Famous videographer, cum director. <laughs> He's a cum director. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like there's no cup in this movie. All the uh, the uh, sex sex scenes remain um, unfulfilled. <laughs> well, I mean, they 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 both end like right on the point of climax, mm. right? Or no, like all three of the sex scenes in this movie are are interrupted, right? Coitus interruptus. Yeah, that's the that could be the uh, the other name of the um, of the film, which is called Polar. For reasons that are unknown to me. 
Well, it's based on a graphic novel that used part of that title with a subtitle. Yeah, but why Why was the graphic novel called that? It's definitely not evident in the film, is what I'm saying. Well, because he lives in a remote, um, cold area that has <laughs> snow. Does it, does it polar refer to a specific, like... Landmass, or is that like the north one of the one of the actual poles? I kind of, I kind of want to find. I'm gonna look at that. Well, uh, you look could, it up. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk? Okay, which one do you want to talk about? Polar or under the Silver Lake first? Maybe we should go by release. I think under the Silver Lake first because it's more of a film. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, let's see. Yeah, apparently, apparently, it just refers to somewhere that's in like a polar region, which the film setting is definitely not. <laughs> Or any of its settings are definitely not. So, I don't know. <laughs> is his name, is his like, I guess his no. code name wasn't that, was it? No, it was, it was like the, the Black, Black Kaiser. Did you watch it like three hours ago or something? Yeah. <laughs> don't remind me. Apparently the comic is minimalist, which is the exact opposite of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? Yeah, according to this. I mean, I should know. This film had me hurtling towards the comic shops. So. <laughs> well, it's a web comic, so it looks like I bet I could just uh, look it up right now. Oh, we can read it while we yeah. while we talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What the hell is it called? Came from the cold by Victor Santos. Now, uh, I, uh, I guess I guess we'll talk about this later. But uh, Mads Mikkelsen isn't he like actually like a fan of this type of stuff, and hence why he's an executive producer? Maybe. I heard. I remember reading some interview where it turned out that he was like a dweeb, a little bit. Yeah, oh, I don't know. It looks like it looks like yeah, a mix of Mike Mignola and Frank Miller. Yeah, yeah, the very um, monochromatic sort of uh, coloring. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't really resemble this film at whatsoever. all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the guy is an eye patch. Yeah. Which like does he always have the eye patch? Like, that was something that well we could, well we'll talk about that later when we talk about four. Unless we're gonna do four now. <laughs> no, uh, I guess we could. Up to you. I don't really care. Uh, all right, let's just do polar now. <laughs> just, we already we already looked up so much about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the first arc is about the bit where he almost gets killed in the uh, by the people in his cabin. Oh, uh, okay. And then it probably flashes back to how he got his eye patch. Well, I'll never know because I'm not going to read this. <laughs> Nor am I. I have zero interest in reading it. Although it does look better than the film, so not, maybe not to spoil my... Thought it is, is nice, I guess. But uh, should I go into my spiel? Yes, please. My name is Paula. I shoot you full of hola. My name is Paula. Oh. <coughs> Polar, colon. You, I can already tell you're going to hate me. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Given the fact that the John Wick series have been a modest box office success and have revitalized the career of Keanu Reeves, it only makes a certain amount of sense that older, uh, that other older male actors looking for new vehicles to push their stardom would embrace the rough contours of its form. Enter Polar, the latest film from Spun's Jonas Ackerland, which applies the John Wick formula, hyperkinetic action sequences, flamboyant hitman characters, goofy mythology, and older white men as slightly vulnerable gods of death to Mads Mikkelsen. Mikkelsen plays Duncan, the quote-unquote Black Kaiser, a legendary hitman under the employ of Matt Lucas's 
Damocles, which is a more or less reputable corporate group. Duncan is about to hit the company's mandatory age of retirement of 50. It is set to cash out uh, something like $8 million via the company's retirement plan. He is uh, going to retire to a cabin in rural Montana, which I suppose is what wins the movie its title, even though, as we discussed earlier, it's kind of nonsensical. Hmm. Uh, but uh, Matt Lucas, whose character name uh, escapes me, and I didn't want to look it up. So Matt Lucas uh, is trying to sell Damocles to another corporation and wants to save himself $8 million uh, by assassinating Duncan before his birthday um, because all the money will be returned to Damocles. Uh, so to do so, he sends a team of wackadoo and sex and murder crazed hitmen who are introduced in the opening sequence of the film, knocking off in more ways than one, poor Johnny Knoxville, um, to take Duncan out. Will Duncan be able to outwit and outgun these flamboyant villains? And will it be able to prevent his new neighbor, Camille, from being drawn into the conflict? Join us, dear listener, as we discuss the joys and follies of 2019's Polar. Yes, please join us. <laughs> was that, was that sufficient? Yeah, that's fine. What? That would be better than mine. Uh, so, Hugh, what did you think of the movie Polar? Uh, I would classify it as a waste of life. <laughs> that's that's a pretty funny description. Um, <laughs> you know what I would classify it as? Hmm. <laughs> the exact same. Hmm. And I mean that in the sense that it wasted all the lives of the people involved in the production of the film. And also anyone who happened to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, that's that's that's, that's, that's the end of my review. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty uh, wretched. I don't know how we've been talking about this movie. <laughs> yeah. I think I suggested watching this for some reason. <laughs> I think I did, maybe actually. Uh, you might have mentioned it at some point, but when we were like trying to decide for this episode, I mean, yeah, give you a bunch of choices, and you're like poor. Hmm. Um, but uh, God. A terrible movie. Yep, yep, I agree. <laughs> I don't. I can't think of anything like even remotely redeeming about it. So okay, I, there were like actually some bits like along the way that I found like somewhat amusing. Not on the film's own terms per se, but there's this like stupid sequence where he gets a dog. He does. Uh, this is probably the highlight of the film, to be honest. But he gets a dog because um, he's like, he's, so he's this he's this grizzled hitman who's looking forward to retirement. But he doesn't really know what to do himself. Uh, he's a grizzled hitman, uh, like like mini grizzled hitman who has no personality. <laughs> yeah, except maybe I'll get a dog. Is his yeah. personality like John Wick? <laughs> um, yeah. Except uh, unlike John Wick, <laughs> well, uh, like a day into dog ownership. Uh, he he wakes up startled and automatically shoots his dog as a reflex. Yeah, that was because of funny. his intense assassin training. I wish they had uh, continued doing that bit. Yeah, with all the different pets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been great. And if that was just the entire movie too, because <laughs> at one point he gets fish, and I think it'd be really funny if he shot the fish. Yes, it would. I but agree. alas, this movie does not have the. Uh, the wit to pull something like that off, I think. No, but I did kind of enjoy the fact that he gets this dog, and also along with the dog, he purchases a book called like "How to Look After a Dog," "How to Take Care of a Dog" or something. Yeah. And then after he kills the dog and has to bury it, 
um, he also like sets a bin on fire. And, yeah, and you see like the the book of how to care a dog on top of it. And then when he gets the fish, we see him reading a book called How to Care About. Yeah, yeah. That was probably the only bit I enjoyed of this entire film. <laughs> uh, I enjoy. I kind of enjoyed him killing the dog, but um, yeah, I mean that whole sequence. The movie, this movie has such bizarre color correction. Hmm. <laughs> Did you notice that too? Everything just seemed off, you know. Yeah. It was. It was so strange. It's made it seem really like muddy and dark. Don't get me started on color correction. Um, I, 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 it's getting worse. I'm seeing it everywhere, and it's really annoying me. Color correction. Well, the particular issue that I've uh, highlighted on a previous podcast, whereby skin tones are sapped of all colour, so mm. or at least part of the skin tones, in certain light. So you get, like, weird grayscale effects on someone's face, as well as, like, an orange highlight from an, an actual light or something. It even happened in uh, Let the Sunshine In, mm. which annoyed me. And it gives, like, this really artificial look to faces. I, I, uh, I can't say that I... Um... I've noticed that. Driving me wild. <laughs> you have such strange things that annoy you. <laughs> so what do you, you think of our dear hero, Mad Mickelson? How was his uh, performance? I'm not, I don't have any affinity towards this type of film where there's like this, you know, cabal of hitmen and whatever, and it's cool and yeah, great. I mean, I guess John Wick is the best form of that. I mean, you know, like, was Samurai's, like, the best form of it, right? Well, that's different. I, I would classify that as a different thing. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's similarly, like, you know, a loner sort of assassin character. But there's, like, a comic book pulpiness to things like John Wick and, or a video game pulpiness yeah, as well. Yeah, John Wick's probably, probably the platonic ideal. Yeah. Like, that's... I mean, I don't like that, that franchise that much, but, like, that's a, a much preferable version to something like this, obviously. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of the exact same movie, too. Uh, yeah, so I'm not predisposed to liking this type of thing. Yeah, neither am I, I don't think. I, I don't like, like, uh, like cool comics. I like comics that are really lame. You know what I mean? No, I don't like cool comics either. And, uh, yeah, this certainly certainly has the ring of that, even if the, the source material might be totally quite different by the looks of it. Yeah. But anyway... Um, the, but, but that being said, I do like Mads Mikkelsen a lot. Me too. I think he's an enjoyable screen presence. So I, I, I'm kind of happy to follow him, uh, as, as a protagonist in anything really. Remember, remember when he was in Doctor Strange? <laughs> I do. I do indeed. I, I like have completely erased him. But, uh, yeah, so, so I do like Mads Mikkelsen. I also enjoy the fact that it's that typical thing that happens, mm-hmm. and uh, we've talked about this to a different... We've followed a sort of similar but different phenomenon with someone like Ben Mendelsohn, uh-huh. who has a very different context in the Australian cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The ACU, as it's called. <laughs> and uh, in this case, we've got someone like Mads Mikkelsen, who is a Dane, a great Dane, in fact. Yeah, he is a dog. <laughs> Who was known for being a sexy leading man in, like, cop shows and stuff. Mm. And he's in some uh, dogma films and other such. Mm. He's in a lot of Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, uh, Danish films. I mean, like, he has a diverse career uh, yeah. in, in European cinema as well. But he is also known for being, like, a heartthrob yeah. leading man. And as soon as he came to America, he's a villain. <laughs> he's evil, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's Mads Mikkelsen, uh, but he's not that good at this movie, so... No. 
he's kind of just playing you know blank. So I mean, it's hard to say what, where the fault lies. I, I can't really blame him for you know sort of I, like I cutting coast. No, I wouldn't blame him. Except either. for the fact that he's an executive producer, yeah. so he but maybe he, he just did that. This but, beast. but maybe he just did that as like a you know I'll sign on to this shitty movie if you give me an executive producer credit. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and but I, I genuinely think that he's actually into some of the, this pop cultural mm. stuff, but Please. I'm not sure. Mm. It just rings a dim dim bell somewhere. I'm gonna type Mads Mikkelsen. Comics. Mads M- Mikkelsen. See what Mikkelsen happens. Cuck. That's it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe I'm partly just thinking of the fact that he's in like Death Stranding and stuff like that. Like, yeah, but yeah, he's gonna be in that. I forgot. Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to find out definitive evidence. Is Matt Mickelson a nerd? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should type that. I'm yeah. going to type it in. <laughs> It'll be a scoop for our podcast. Is he a nerd? I have no idea. I don't know how I would learn this. <laughs> <laughs> what does Rad Magicalson like? <laughs> so just gonna watch a bunch of interviews and get back to you. Anyway, so uh, Polar, <laughs> what, what else to talk about? Have you seen any of the other movies that uh, Jonas Ackerland uh, directed? I've seen Smack My Bitch Up. Is that a movie? What? Is that like a first person video, right? Yeah, it's it's terrible. I think I've seen that too. He does not seem like a good director. No, and the twist is that. We were following the perspective of a woman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, so my exposure to this director is from his video clips, such as Ray of Light and the aforementioned Smack My Bitch Up. He's directed a shitload of videos. Yeah, it seems to be what he mostly is known for. But unlike, say, uh, David Fincher, he doesn't really seem to have successfully translated his brand into making fooling films. Well, maybe he has. I don't know. Is his film clips that great? <laughs> he's maybe he's perfectly transitioned from shitty film clips to shitty films. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, I, I don't think he, I, I'm trying to say he's he did moves same, like Jagger, man. He has had the same level of success mm. as a filmmaker. <laughs> so let's talk about Polar. Oh yeah. What did you think of the? Uh, <laughs> were you like me immediately put off by the opening sequence? <laughs> Uh, I believe I messaged you after I had watched like five minutes of like we made a mistake. <laughs> Although like the receding boner of Johnny Knoxville was probably the visual <laughs> high point of this film, I think. Yeah. But uh, I was then put off later in the film by the mysterious appearance of Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> that was so strange. <laughs> I I I, I really want to like read as to why Richard Dreyfus was in this film. Uh, anyway, so what was this <laughs> film? Uh, there's a hitman. What did you think of the uh, squad of wacky assassins? I felt really bad for all of them. Mm-hmm. Just the people who are in it, especially the female characters. It's not a film that has a very uh, positive relationship to, I would say, the uh, nude female body. So this this does have gratuitous sex scenes. Yeah. As, as male gazy as you'd expect yeah. from this type of film. Um, but it does make me think about the filming process of, of those scenes. And for the most part, 
all Mads Mikkelsen had to do was lie there. <laughs> <laughs> While women mounted him. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally he has to stand up <laughs> and thrust. But for yeah. the most part, he's just lying down while they do all the work. <laughs> oh do, do you see his butt? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, definitely. So it's, it's an equal opportunity uh, offender, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> I'm really struggling to think of anything to say about Polar. Me too. It was, just, it was really wretched. It felt very regressive as well, especially like the scene in which they... The squad of assassins um, are, are trying to find uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. And uh, they're going from target to target uh, to track him down. Yeah, and, it's like, uh, oh, the sex freak. Yeah, and then there's this this grossly overweight guy. Yeah. And the joke is that, it, you know, it's hard to kill him because he's got so much fat. So, That's hilarious. Yeah. And for some reason, he seems to be dressed up in... Um, Makeup, so I don't know if it was also like transphobic at the same time as probably shaming. So that I mean, uh, this makes you really want to watch a full length Jonas Ackerman comedy, right? Definitely. What do you think of uh, Matt Lucas? Okay, do you, had you had much exposure to Matt Lucas prior to this? Uh, I'm trying to think. He's on Doctor Who. Ah, uh, yeah, you'd probably know him more from that. I think that's the only thing I've seen him in. I'm like aware of Little Brit, but I've never watched it. So yeah, so that I mean, that's that was a fairly big thing, obviously in the UK, but it was also relatively big in Australia as well. So that that's my context for him. Mm. So when he first appeared, I just laughed, <laughs> <laughs> not because that's of his funny. performance, which is I actually I think he's quite a good actor, and I think he's the better of the two Little Britons. <laughs> he's good. He's fine in Doctor Who. He is. God awful in this movie. He's terrible here, yeah. <laughs> I can't even, like, get it. He just feels like he's, he's, like, it just feels, like, so, like, winky, you know? Hmm. He's like, oh, yes, I am a villain. It just felt like a Xerox of a Xerox, you know? So, like, like I guess we'll spoil the, the, the twist. Is there a twist? Oh, yeah, I guess the the fact that uh, Vanessa Hudgens, who was also terrible, <laughs> and spends, like, maybe a third of the scenes she's in, like, crying... <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, gets drugged and you kind of just like, okay. Yeah, so let's set it. So Mads Mikkelsen is obviously trying to retire um, from his his assassin ways. And uh, he's in this uh, remote Michigan town. Is it Michigan? Yeah, I think it was. I'm going to look it up. Or at least Michigan's in the film at some point, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the caption on the screen. I'm going to look it up. No, it's Montana. That's what I thought. Is it Montana? Yeah. Anyway, so he befriends he befriends his uh, young neighbor. Yeah. Played by um, High School Musicals Vanessa Hudgens. Yep. And then uh, when these when the the evil uh, hitman syndicate is coming after him and they want to get to him, they kidnap her uh-huh. and drug her. And when he when he finally rescues her and, and takes her home, etc., then it's revealed that uh, he was actually responsible for inadvertently murdering her family. Which is foreshadowed by these uh, dream sequences where he's shooting mm-hmm. people in a car. And that uh, she's purposely tracked him down and and knew who he was the whole time, and now she's going to kill him. But does she kill him? No, she doesn't. I thought this, this film would have been interesting if she just killed him, and I'm like, well, that's kind of but a... Hugh, they have to set up the Polar franchise. <laughs> I know, that's clearly what it was. And it's obviously that's what the comic is based on that premise. And it's like, we gotta track down the people who 
killed your, who paid me to kill your family. The thing that, like, this is, like, if you, if you tried to sell me a premise that I couldn't be less interested in, <laughs> yeah. and I'm talking about, like, at least the comic book here, if it's the same, it's like, uh-huh. oh, it's this great comic book about this, uh, hitman who you know years earlier he'd accidentally murdered this girl's family and and then she comes down to track him but then they end up forming an alliance to to find out the real culprits and you know there's a lot of moral complexity because he murdered her whole family and now (laughs) (laughs) and also he's got an eye patch and this cool assassin the scene where he cries because he actually killed her family so stupid yeah (laughs) these guys showed no remorse over killing like thousands of people and you're tell me like he, he never accidentally killed other people like come on mm. like that's the only one where he was like oh no like you you want to tell me that he didn't like assassinate people who are like witnesses for the mob and stuff like that like exactly it's fucking so stupid it's, i did think it was pretty funny because like the entire movie it just seems like he's asleep right or like there, there's nothing to it just like he's like an automaton and then he finally starts <laughs> crying it's like it's like zoe cried at the end of zoe it's like what? <laughs> so stupid it would have been better if he died when that scene was playing out and like she's got the gun to his head and i was like well maybe i've misjudged this film and this is going to be something like interesting no 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 and like maybe a miss, maybe like it's not a perfect execution of this idea. Clearly, but it it would be an interesting ending if he just got shot in the head. Why <laughs> <laughs> no? Well, that's that's another reason why this is such a uh, obvious John Wick knockoff. Yeah, but the idea of this being a franchise and there being more installments of this, or even whatever the hell the comic book does, just makes me queasy. Well, now we have to, we've we've committed to watching every one of them. So, yes, we have. Uh, so, is there anything else we have to say about a uh, fucking polar? No, don't watch it. <laughs> yeah. And it goes for fucking ever. I sh- I should say that. Like, even though uh, Under the Silver Lake is a longer movie by a significant margin, didn't feel like it. It, it felt way shorter. <laughs> I guess it's not that much longer. Let's see. It's twenty minutes longer. Yeah, it definitely felt uh, comparatively. Uh, breezy so yeah this i mean this you felt every second of its uh, two hours yeah um yeah. and i was squeezing this in after watching uh under the silver lake so you can pause it and go back no and and it was uh late at night as well so mm. <laughs> i was just like oh god i looked at my watch at one point which i don't normally do by watching a film and i was like oh for fuck's sake another like hour to go definitely on the lower end of the films that we've done for the show mm-hmm. i'd say it's probably the worst movie i've seen this year wow so it beats unicorn store yeah i think i think i'd rather watch unicorn story again then. i would too i would, I would shut up unicorn story is more unicorn irritating story. i think but uh i think it polar is, is more excruciating too unicorn store is perfect yeah we watched velvet buzzsaw my god we watched so much shit this year so far <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the dirt so okay that's polar under the silver lake under the silver lake under the silver lake uh but anyway under the silver lake Uh so this is the third feature from uh David Wunderkind, David Robert Mitchell. <laughs> nope. Yeah, David. Nope. Robert, I'm reading it. 
Is it Robert? Uh, what is, David Robert? I'm oh, reading okay. it off Wikipedia, so I'm right. No, you, I'm you not. I, 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 <laughs> God damn it. Okay, whatever. David Robert Mitchell. Yes, David Robert Mitchell. This is his third feature. Yes. Um, it follows. It follows. <laughs> I was going to get a drink like that uh, earlier, but I didn't. Yes, I got you. Um, it follows. It follows, which itself followed uh, his first film. Whose name I forgot. Uh, the Myth of the American Sleepover. Yeah. Which I've not seen. Uh, which I think got a little bit of notice. Yeah, but... but uh, certainly nothing in comparison to It Follows itself, which you have seen. I have seen. Maybe mixed feelings about. I, I, I quite like it. You quite liked it, but you didn't think it, would, it, it quite came off, is what I remember. I quite like it. Oh, okay. Never mind. An unqualified success. No, not an unqualified success, but... It's good. A qualified success. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> okay. All right. It's good. Cool. I do want to watch it actually, and uh, it's got a I, very I, enjoyable flavor. All right. Anyway, so this is Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, his third feature film, which follows uh, <laughs> the visit of American Sleepover, and it follows. And this has been met with uh, something of a mixed reception. Yes. Certainly not the rapturous response that greeted It Follows. Um, and it centers around a jobless loser weirdo guy called Sam. Travis Michael by, Wannabe called Sam. Played by Andrew Garfield. Yes. Uh, and he befriends an attractive neighbor after conspicuously ogling her via binoculars. Yes. I guess the friend seems a little strong, but... Yeah, well... He meets her. There's, a, there's a, the beginning of what could turn into a friendship. Yeah. Um, only to have her mysteriously vanish on him the following day. Yes. Um, already inclined towards conspiracy theories, Sam begins a wild discursive investigation to discover what happened to her, uh, exposing the seedy underbelly of LA along the way, etc., etc., etc. So let's, let's trace the lineage here to maybe explain this movie better than my synopsis did. So this is obviously consciously evoking film noir, but it's a very particular kind of film noir. For sure. Uh, although it's referencing an earlier classical era of film noir from its score down to the posters that festoon our protagonist's uh, apartment. And the Hitchcock references that are... Mm-hmm, and the Hitchcock references. Um, this, this very particularly uh, operates in the mode of the 70s post-noir films of Chinatown and Long Goodbye, which have recently had a resurgence with films like Inherent Vice and even The Nice Guys, I would say. Yeah. Um, Where it's the kind of noir where instead of this forbidding urban industrial environment, the concrete city, we get sunbathed LA mansions. And uh, usually our heroes are more out of step and less competent than their hard-boiled forebearers. Yes. Often stumbling through the unfolding mystery in something of a daze. Uh-huh. And this was especially true of the narcotic detours in Inherent Vice. And certainly I, I would say that uh, Inherent Vice appears to be the most immediate reference point sure. um, when, you, when you start watching this. And it does owe a debt to that film's hallucinatory comic momentum. And I think just like sort of Pinchotian conspiracy in general yeah 
Now, I, I will say, I do think it's a worrying sign when a, a director decorates their central protagonist's apartment with posters from other films. Sure. And also frequently includes sequences of earlier films displayed on television screens especially when those films are like stylistic reference points for the film itself. It's kind of as if the director is keen to reassure us that the debt that he owes to other works is conscious and deliberate and not the product of a barren imagination. Yeah. But I will say that fortunately my fears were unfounded and I actually thought this was quite a satisfying effort. Yeah, so did I. I thought it was imperfect, but I I genuinely enjoyed the way it played out and I respected its ambition as well. I, what did you think? I yeah, basically feel the same. I might even be a little more positive than you. Uh, I really enjoy this sort of mode that uh, you know he's playing with here and inherent by sort of my favorite films the last couple of years. Um, but I do think this film has sort of a it strikes its own uh, sensibility and tone. Um, I agree. Yeah. I, I was wondering if it was just gonna be a sort of knockoff of that style, but I, I think it I think it actually is an inventive take on it. Yeah, because it, it pushes uh, more into like, and I mean, the, the film that it reminded me more of actually than any of the films that you mentioned there was something like After Hours or Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's true. But I really like the way he's framed the narrative. I think it's particularly smart. Because like, as with the films we I've, I've mentioned already, we have that standard setup. You know, a character gets involved in some sort of mystery and through their investigation, they expose this broader conspiracy, right? Yeah. It's just, it's a standard trope. And usually the inciting incident is like the sudden disappearance of a character, usually female. And um, normally we have a private investigator, you know, following leads. Yeah. But here, instead of the world-weary detective or even the pot adult detective from Inherent Vice or whatever he was. Was he a detective? I can't actually Yeah, he's a private detective. Yeah, yeah. Um, So instead of that, we have Andrew Garfield playing this unemployed conspiracy theorist come outright creep. (laughs) (laughs) Come wannabe future white nationalist. (laughs) Like, soon to be be, uh, radicalized. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Gamer cater. And I I think this reframes the central mechanic of someone uncovering a a broader conspiracy from clues in in an interesting way. And it makes it, it puts it in a way more unflattering light than a lot of the other films we've talked about, I think. And there's a, there's a huge difference, I think, between the, or the distance, I mean, between the, the film and its protagonist, which a lot of the other films sort of are congratulatory of their, their characters, I think. Yeah, exactly. And it's as if the, the clue solving puzzle box narrative is just a manifestation of his desire for meaning. Yeah. Um, like the world has started, suddenly started conforming to his delusions. Yes. And it's hard to tell in this movie. It has a very hallucinatory visual style. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's often hard. I mean, kind of David Lynch-ish, I suppose. Yeah, I think Mulholland Drive is a reference point as well. But not quite as, um, I don't know, like uh, Nightmare-esque. Mm. It's more like uncanny, I'd say, than than. Lynch's Although film. it does have it does have its touches of horror. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, I just really like the fact that he's deliberately centralized this type of narrative around someone who is deluded and off-putting, like the sort of alienated creep who would actually believe this or want to believe this type of stuff. Yeah, and that uh, I think uh, Andrew Garfield's performance, especially, is amazing in this. Yeah, I think he's really good. And I'm not really a big fan of his. I think he's pretty uh, bad in most stuff. Um, but I think he's like perfectly just in tune. And like, I think that the film sort of risks you just being completely off board with it by making him so unlikable. 
Yeah. But I think I think Garfield's performance helps you or adds some like, ambiguity to him. I, I think it's instructive that you mentioned uh, Taxi Driver because this is one of those things where the film, uh, the style of the film is in concert with the character's psychology. Yeah. I mean, to so, to some degree, there are there are scenes that like sort of, you know, push outside of him. I think. Yeah, yeah. Like the bit where he beats up his children. <laughs> like, so like, whoa. Um, but yeah, but suddenly one hopes that is the intent for for most of the film, especially as every single woman on screen exists to be gawked at and little else. Yeah. Um, but I think that's intentional because I I I, I read some stuff where. Uh, David Robert Mitchell talked about the fact that his first two films centered around strong female protagonists. And for his third film, he wanted to completely flip that and center it around a really weak male protagonist. <laughs> a bad male guy. Yeah. And have their sort of point of view uh, infiltrate the film. Yeah, I think, I, think you can, I think we can give the benefit of the doubt here. Because there's so many like deliberate things that sort of point to the character's misogyny too. And like this sort of inherent misogyny to these sort of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, like, I think the, the introduction of, like, that weird mythological, whose name I've forgotten, the, like, female murderer figure sort of points to that, where she's, like, the, this, this, uh, locus of, of male horror, you know? Hmm. And, like, like, Andrew Garfield was, like, established as a lech from the very first moments of the film. Yeah. <laughs> the first scene is him, like, ogling someone in a cafe. It is. And then he progresses to, like, ogling his neighbours through binoculars <laughs> in the next scene. Um, and I guess, no, even... It's not just it's not just necessarily the women in this film who are given short shrift by the narrative, yeah. but no one else really has any space. And, like, pretty much it, it's very all the other characters, like, don't even go, go without names, almost. Yeah, everyone is just functionary in pieces of the puzzle. Which sort of, again, like, points to the, the narcissism, narcissism of the, the characterization, right? Or mm. the narcissistic quality that... Um, Cameron or Mitchell is uh, characterizing Sam as having. I also like the way it stays true to uh, its hard-boiled roots by offering no catharsis or satisfaction once the central mysteries are uncovered. Yeah. So I think, like like the best noirs, what is ultimately revealed is our hero's impotence in the face of a world in which he doesn't understand or belong. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is that it is emphasized here by the fact that. Uh, literally nothing is resolved in terms no. of the bad guys being stopped or anyone being saved. But there's not even, like, a bad guy, really. No. And he just has to basically agree not to say anything and retreat to his hopeless life. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that weird scene with the, the guy who, like, wrote all the music? I liked that. I <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> I really liked how, like, deliberately it was, like, connecting uh, that to, like, video game obsession, too. Because mm. a plot point revolves around a uh, a map that is printed in um, Nintendo Power. I was like, because I'm I'm presuming you have to clear it with Nintendo, right? I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess so. I think you would because that's why they cover up Apple logos in stuff. This film must have had a pretty decently decent budget. <laughs> I'm just surprised not that not about the fact that they like were able to afford whatever they had to do to get to clear it. Yeah. But the fact that Nintendo would agree to appear in this particular film. Yeah. Because I, I think they want the image to be a little safer. <laughs> Which has one of the most, like, deliberately off-putting sex scenes that I can yeah. think of. <laughs> I just like that. You're so shitty. <laughs> and, like, 
I like the recurring bit of uh, people saying that he he smells bad. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that because that's that's uh, something that it uh, borrows from. I think it I think it was really started in Chinatown. Well, what do you mean? Uh, where where uh, early on in the film, Jack Nicholson gets his nose sliced. Oh yeah, okay. So he spends the rest of this film with uh, uh, a bandage over his nose. And it's sort of this uh, impairment that kind of emasculates the protagonist. Yeah. And it's this this constant reminder of uh, their marginalization as they get further embroiled into this horrible conspiracy. Yeah. Um, but I liked this particular version of it where he's been sprayed by a skunk. Yeah. The only thing that annoyed me is that uh, some characters didn't mention it at all, despite being in extremely close proximity. Well, you know, sometimes you got to be polite about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, but no, but you think, like, they would register, like, some sort of, ooh, what's that smell, yeah. without even saying anything. Well, I mean, obviously, you, like, bathe themselves in tomato juice, so I feel like that gets it off pretty well, but... Yeah, maybe it was just, I guess, the remnants of it. Yeah. Uh, I really like that his, like, the, the woman he has, like, casual sex with just get, leaves the movie after that scene. <laughs> I really like that scene as well because, like, we we didn't quite until that point we didn't quite get the full scope of his his paranoia. Yeah, it's hard. It's kind of hard to know to get a read on his character. Hmm. And then you hear that, and it's like this guy is crazy. And I'm glad <laughs> that like that the woman's like, oh well, never seen you again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also like that, uh, and I think I think Andrew Garfield delivers that speech really well. Um, and after he says it, he kind of has this. Moment of self-reflection going, wait, you think I sound crazy, don't you? Because <laughs> we should just be writing exactly what it is, because he's, he's obsessively charted all of Vanna White's performances <laughs> on, on television, because she makes a specific gesture. <laughs> yeah, this is a... I, I, I really like movies that are set in LA, but they aren't really about the film industry. Yeah. Uh, and this is definitely satisfies that requirement. <laughs> What do you think about uh, my boy Topher Grace? I didn't actually recognize him in his first scenes in this. Wow, um, it was only like that's so insulting. The scene with the drone. I re- that scene's great though. I mean, another scene sort of points towards the film trying to distance itself from the character, you know? Hmm. Because like they they uh, start by being like, okay, we're gonna ogle this woman, but then she starts like breaking out and crying. They're like, uh, I don't know about this. <laughs> Yeah, that was funny. And uh, the only thing that annoyed me about that was just the technical thing where the drone, for some reason, is zooming in cinematically. Yeah. Despite no one actually controlling it at the time. Yeah, whatever. Um, I also like that he implicates himself as being part of, like, you know, contributing to this case. Because there's that scene where he he goes to the drive-in, right? Mm. And that is, uh, apparently, not having seen this movie, but that's uh, the movie that they're watching is... The myth of the American sleepover. So, ah, uh, was it really? Yeah. And apparently, the redheaded woman um, is. So that's why she's talking about the fact that she was in that film. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's it's... just used her before. Yeah. Well, I do think it's funny that she's like, "Oh, I didn't make any movie out of uh, uh, any mo- uh, money on that movie." It's like <laughs> she probably didn't. So, what do you think about the uh, charges it's faced from some corners of being misogynistic? I think we've addressed that. And I don't think there's much way around it. No. Like, I think the perspective of this... Like, it, it just depends on, on on how much you believe it's intentional on the part of David Robert Mitchell to, to frame it that way. 
but um, giving him the benefit of the doubt, as he said, it wouldn't make sense to challenge that by having, like, I don't know, like a strong female character counterpoint to the main character. That wouldn't make any sense. Which is its own, like, sort of set of problems, right? Hmm. But yeah, this is like the first, like, great movie about uh, shitty, like, internet forums, in a way. Yeah. Even if the internet doesn't play, like, any role in this movie at all. Except for one scene where they, uh, and I, I like that they used Google instead of, like, some shitty, like, fake search engine. Yeah. Which, which often happens. I know, I, I always notice that as well. It always rings hollow. Yeah. Um, although it was, like, a faked Google, but still. Yeah, it was better than them having, going on, like, lookitup.net or something stupid like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go to Quizlet.com or whatever it is. I forgot what all, all the other search engines are. But, um... Ask Jeeves, man, come on. That was named after your favorite book characters of all time. <laughs> I also liked, I also liked the fact that, uh, in the opening section of the film, the film deliberately seems to play with its time period. Yeah. Like, it seems to suggest that maybe this is set in the late 80s, early 90s or something. Did you get that? And for some reason, they're watching, like, old tennis matches on TV to say, oh, this is actually the past. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get that, really. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it wasn't that intentional. But... I've, re- I've read some other stuff about people, like, feeling this film was, like, sort of temporally disconnected. And then, like, and then it casually starts introducing references to online, and then you see his phone and stuff like that. But that's that's actually what happens, and it follows too. So it wouldn't surprise me that. Okay, yeah, because that that felt to me like a deliberate sort of uh, um, unmooring of the the time period, which reflects the character's unmooring from reality. <laughs> hmm. And also, it, it it seemed to consciously evoke uh, ninety the nineties, like yeah, the, like the that band. And that stuff. band was like that a sort of amalgam of shitty 90s yeah. bands. And like, and like they're um, revering of Kurt Cobain too. Yeah. I, I love that when we start playing um, Smells Like Tea Spirit, like the, the songwriter guy. <laughs> um, yeah, the way that they kill that guy is so brutal. <laughs> God. But I, th- I think the violence to his character uh, also plays into the the evocation of, you know, these, these type of alt-right conspiracy yeah. theorists who often end up killing people yeah killing people yeah that's what is the word i'm searching for and the yeah. way that when the conspiracy is revealed by the songwriter to not be to his liking that he you know reacts by yeah such violence <laughs> and i like i i really like the sort of that revelation of just it's not even like uh there's no like the conspiracy is just you know pop culture um maintaining the status quo which you know Mm. it's like not that deep of a revelation you know what i mean like it's pretty basic like uh adorno and horkheimer like cultural machine stuff I, I also quite like the bit where like he's he's uh he's wandering down that boulevard in la uh late at night outside the reservoir and then he goes on this screed against homeless people yeah and you're like, what it's like it's a little uh, american psycho-ish <laughs> Um, and I just like the, the, the disconnect between that and the fact that he's like, gonna be homeless in a bit, but the, like, I guess he's got some like degree of privilege that is yeah. allowing him to coast by, despite he doesn't care that much about being a no. or, or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it's a, it's a film that really, um, forwards the fact that the character is a piece of garbage. Hmm. Like when he beats up that other guy too. It's like shockingly violent. I liked and the shot of <laughs> his glittering poo. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that was so weird. 
It's very gross. I appreciated that. What did you think of the uh, animated sequences? I mean, I, I only have a technical gripe about them. Which is what? I quite liked. I think they added to the texture of the film quite well. Yeah. Um, uh, I just don't. I just don't like that cheating style of animation. Like it was a mixture of genuine frame by frame mm, and CGI animation and not CGI, but no. I mean, I guess it's computer assisted. Uh-huh. But um, this is this is going back to my days as a, a dabbler in Flash. <laughs> Where, where there's a thing called tweening that the computer does automatically for you. Um, whereas in traditional animation, it's done by hapless uh, Korean animators, I guess. <laughs> where uh, you, you have these two frames and then the computer generates the in-between frames. And often the way you animate these days to save a lot of time and effort mm-hmm. is to uh, essentially treat the elements of the anatomy like bits of cardboard that you can just move about on the computer so that that side of things annoyed me because it was kind of a mixture between some traditional proper animation and that type of thing mm-hmm. and if it was all just traditional animation it would have looked better that's all i'll say i did like how um bizarre this movie was too <laughs> just like it's you know various or I, I like that bit where he um comes out of like that tunnel and it just is in the background of uh, some convenience store <laughs> Just a great strange image. I like, yeah, I liked, I liked the hobo king and stuff, and that was yeah. Cool. I like the sort of the evocation of like Scientology as well. Mm. What do you think of the soundtrack or the score? I mean, this was the score by uh, wasn't it the same people who did um, uh, one of the shitty films we watched? <laughs> uh, we watched so many shitty disaster films. piece. Yeah, it is disaster piece. Who did Triple Frontier? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Because I remember you mentioned that. Um, because you were aware of them. Well, I didn't remember that. Well, it's just one guy, so. Oh, is it just one guy? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They did do Triple Frontier. That's that's embarrassing. Yeah. So this obviously is a more successful score, yeah. um, and I thought it worked quite well. Obviously, it's deliberately evoking. It's deliberately evoking um, Ben and Herman and yeah, classical Hollywood scores. Yeah. Um, but it actually seemed to to work. And it juts off into electronica at parts too. Mm. Yeah. It's a good film. I'm surprised. I guess I'm not surprised, but uh, it's interesting how divisive it's been. Yeah, I can understand why, but yeah, I'm surprised that more people haven't been positive. Yeah. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I was kind of afraid you wouldn't like it and I had to kill you. <laughs> I thought I wasn't uh, 100% sure you'd like it because I was like, really? you like Inherent Vice so much that I was I like, do. maybe you were like, oh, I, I preferred Inherent Vice. No, I think it's pretty, it's got a very different feeling than Inherent Vice does. It does, yeah. Because Inherent Vice like has some moments of like, uh, you know, like hallucination and stuff, but the conspiracy isn't quite as like out there as it is in, in this movie. And that film's a little more, um, I don't know, it, it, it beds itself more in its hero's quest, I think, than, yeah. than this does. Um, I do think Inherent Vice is better, but <laughs> that's not here or there. I think they're close for me, mm. but uh, I do like Inherent Vice as well. Um, I, I, I probably want to revisit it before I'd be definitive about that. Yeah, let's just watch them both back to back, just over and over mm. again. I actually genuinely have a weakness for this type of narrative, even when it's not self-reflexive like this, mm. this is. I, I, I just tend to like... I know how much you love noir. These type of stories. Isn't it funny that Topher Grace was in 
two movies that were competed at con last year but he's like pretty minimal minimal part of this film yeah and in uh black Klansman too um it's funny that this week we've got a netflix film mm-hmm. and then another film that could be a candidate for a netflix film like you could imagine netflix giving um david robert mitchell money <laughs> yeah to make a follow-up film for to it follows and and him making some sort of disaster that ended up covered on our podcast when said he made this movie so but instead has hope yet. it was released in cinemas and it's good so i wonder if it'll, this film has been kind of a disaster like financially i think yeah oh oh sorry we're, we're missing one of the threads that we we should talk about uh-huh. the fact that this film has been described as antonioni meets the secret of monkey island really yeah well the only reason i wanted to watch this for the podcast yeah. was the fact that uh, I had read that he had referenced um, Monkey Island <laughs> in interviews in, re- in relation David to this film. Robert Mitchell or whatever his name Yeah, David Robert Mitchell. That's funny. He talked about the fact that in those games, and he was talking about Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which are odd reference points when you actually see this film, but anyway. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of get the adventure game like logic. Like there's... Yeah, it's the, it's the mechanic, Not, but those are odd games to choose because there are actual games that kind of mimic this style of narrative uh, more directly. Which, which ones do you think of? Well, the games like the games where you're actually investigating and come and following clues and sure. uncovering a conspiracy. There are actually games. <laughs> Phantasmagoria. Well, yeah, and uh, things like Gabriel Knight and Broken Sword yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Or the Indiana Jones games or movies. But uh, I think he was just specifically referring to the fact that in the in the mechanics of those games, because like you often progress the narrative by combining unlikely objects together to achieve some sort of effect, mm-hmm. um, that you you develop this weird worldview about the space around you, and you you start searching for patterns and clues in random mm-hmm. objects, yeah. even ones that turn out not to have any significance and stuff. Yeah. That was his main thing. It was more of a mechanical thing, but yeah. I do appreciate the fact that he referenced the, the greatest video game. You mean Shin Megami Tensei Digital Devils are good yeah, too? Yeah, he talked about whatever that film game <laughs> that is. That game? Thing. <laughs> 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 All right, well, why is that game good? Explain. Give me, give me a crazy. Um, well, it's got the best uh, narrative twist maybe of all time. Uh, the gameplay is fantastic. It's just a really satisfying... What uh, type of game? What type it's of a game Japanese role-playing game. Uh, okay. The long-running Shin Megami Tensei series, which is, you know, sort of a niche uh, title. Um, it's just a really um, strange and bizarre game. And it's great. I don't know. I don't know. It yeah, sounds terrible. Yeah, well, it's just fucking Monkey Island. So, fuck <laughs> you. Hey, isn't this funny? This is another example of Monkey Island's influence permeating the culture. I just, I just want people, I just want people to uh, to talk about heavy references to Shinigami Tensei Digital Devils Sega Two. That's all I want. <laughs> Maybe I, <laughs> yeah, I had to direct my own movies and see them with references to those games. <laughs> like that'll be my like, you know, this movie has them like uh, playing Mario, playing Mario, or um. Uh, like watching what was it seventh heaven hmm. at the end uh, that would be my version of that just him playing <laughs> I didn't say digital devils like it too <laughs> but I, I there, it, it, there's this uh, not to get on too much of a tangent but there's this video game show which I don't remember the name of but it was on this network bonus features bonus bonus features 
Uh, okay, so I watched Dragon Inn, which is a 1967 film by King Who. Who? Made in... Wait, who? King what? I don't understand. Do you know why this is funny? Because you don't actually... Hadn't you not heard of the Who's on First routine? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't know. That's why That's why this is funny. Because it's a really famous Abbott and Costello routine. Mm. Yeah, probably not then. And it's about a baseball match against the Chinese team. And the joke is, who's on first? That's what I want to know. No, who's on first? <laughs> that doesn't sound racist at all. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's great. Okay. Well, great. Uh, there's a little bit of comic synchronicity. I think you could just say that I'm... Uh, Parallel a, thinking, yeah. yeah as a uh, large of a comedic genius as Abbott and or Costello is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Dra- a Dragon Inn is a 1967 film directed by King Hu. And uh, it was made in Taiwan, although King Hu himself is uh, not from Taiwan. He was born in Beijing, so he was born mainland China, but he worked in Hong Kong uh, as part of the famous Shaw Brothers Studios, and then he left them to help start up a new studio in uh, Taiwan. And he made the film Dragon Inn, which follows his previous success with Shaw Brothers' uh, Come Drink With Me. And this is a uh, martial arts film which uh, incorporates elements of other genres, such as the spaghetti western stuff that uh, Leone was doing, is consciously referenced here, Um, as well as uh, even Hitchcockian suspense. It's a really interesting film. And uh, the craft of, of some of these sequences approaches transcendence and actually reaches transcendence at several points. It's a really wonderful film. And I highly recommend... It both approaches and reaches transcendence. Yeah. Some scenes approach it, others reach it. Hmm. There's just some wonderful, amazing moments. So it's just it's just centred around this in... Uh-huh. I, I, I won't bother explaining the plot. You may as well just watch it. Okay. All I'm saying is highly recommended. You should have... I was reading about... Apparently they remade it in the 90s. They did. So there's... But there's two great... Re, there's two great subsequent reworkings of it. Um... One of them is called New Dragon Gate, New Dragon Inn, or New Dragon Gate Inn, or whatever it was called, uh, with Tony Leung and Maggie Chung, in fact. Ah, maybe that's what I was reading. I was reading about uh, Maggie Chung's filmography after watching uh, uh, Police Story. But then, um, even more interestingly, there's a film called Goodbye Dragon Inn by Taiwanese director Simon Lang. And that is about people watching this film uh, at its last screening in a cinema. So it's it's actually screening within the film. And two of the actors who are in this uh, original film uh, appear mm. in the cinema as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really want to see that. It sounds really interesting. But uh, King Hu famously went on to direct uh, even more acclaimed films such as A Touch of Zen, which I'm very much looking forward to watching. Mm-hmm. And I'll report back about that later. Uh, I also watched uh, About Time. About time, which is, yeah. You watched it. <laughs> it is a Richard Curtis uh, effort. Your favorite filmmaker of all time. My favorite filmmaker of all time. It's a romantic comedy centered around time travel, uh, featuring your mate, Domhnall Gleeson, and I think this was a an early role for Margot Robbie. Oh, you're a country I mean, she's woman. in. I, I'm assuming it was an early role for her in uh, this type of this scale of production. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But this is like. Uh, Absolutely terrible. So <laughs> well, terrible. I remember getting pretty good reviews when it came out. 
It's terrible. <laughs> and I, I kind of like some of like Richard Curtis's stuff. Like uh-huh. I quite enjoy Notting things Hill. like Notting Hill and stuff like that. They're, they're, they're enjoyable romantic comedies. But this is like the worst of his impulses and the wor- and like just how little Rachel McAdams gets to do as Dominal Gleason's mate is uh, is pretty wonderful. We like time stalks, right? Yeah. So he and this is the pr- this is this is why the narrative has problems <laughs> from that perspective. So I've seen uh, when we first met. I know what it's like. Yeah, he has. He, so he's part of a, a lineage of, of male figures in, in this particular family line who, for whatever reason, are able to travel back in time. <laughs> That's bizarre. Is it, is it explained at all? No, I like, I like the fact that it doesn't explain it. And oh, the way so that they time travel is they have to go into a dark place and clench their fists and think of where they want to be. That's so stupid. I mean, they just pull that out of a hat. That's the best part of the film is that conceit because <laughs> that's kind of fun. I like how like, half-assed it is. And the fact that they have to go into like a closet and stuff. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> up their face. You just imagine this. He's like, I gotta find a closet. Oh, wow. Tom Holland is in it. For some reason, I didn't recognize him. Really? <laughs> I don't know where he was. <laughs> this is 2013, so he would have been wow. younger. But... <laughs> he played the baby. Oh, sorry. Wait. Tom Holland. Uh, sorry. Yeah, that's not his name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're so stupid. Uh, anyway, so what happens is. Uh, he does this time travel business. He's got this power that he learns that Bill Nye uh, explains to him. Bill Nye is his father. And uh, he uh, ends up at one of those restaurants that take place in pitch black. You know those things? Have you heard of those things? No. Where you eat in the dark and it's just a it's like vaguely yeah, sure. taste-based sensory experience or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and he ends up meeting... Like, he ends up sitting at the table with her, like, him and his friends sit at the table with her and her friend, and they end up getting along and having this amazing night and connection. Uh-huh. And then he, you know, moves on with his life, and he's, he's going to see her again. He's got her number. Uh-huh. And then he decides to use his time travel ability to help uh, a playwright associate friend of his. But he ends up traveling back in time to before he met. Rachel McAdams oh, and realizing that now he's lost his number and he's lost that connection. So then he has to meet her despite her having no knowledge of him and try and uh, rekindle this connection. Uh, and he ends up doing that uh, highly dubious thing of like using stuff that she has told him to win her over in conversation. One of her things that he takes from a conversation he had earlier with her mm-hmm. was the fact that for whatever reason, she's um, her thing like, her character trait is that she's really into Kate Moss, the model. Okay. And she has theories about... Wow, that sounds like a personality. <laughs> I know. And she has theories about, like, why uh, she was so important and her the different phases of her modeling career. It's just really bizarre and stupid. It sounds like they know how women function. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, like, the way he wins her over at a party, despite having her having no knowledge of him, is like saying, oh, yeah, I'm really into Kate Moss. Uh, I really like the early phase of her career where she was really earthy and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, wow, you're just like me. That's so bizarre. <laughs> and that's how they start their relationship. Yeah, that seems about right. So, yeah, that, that, I just found that quite off-putting. And, but the main crime beyond that is is just how little... Uh, he gives Rachel McAdams to do so. Sounds like a great romantic adventure. It's a terrible film. 
Uh, I also watched uh, the James Baldwin uh, quasi-documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Nope. I noticed you had given it kind of a lower score than I was expecting. Yeah, I don't think the actual documentary itself is that strong. Mm. I think the merits it has are via James Baldwin himself. Mm. Because the film is structured uh, around his, his unfinished last novel. Yeah. Isn't it Samuel Jackson who's narrating it or reading it or whatever? Samuel Jackson is, is narrating um, the text from his unfinished final novel. Right. So the, the best parts of this film are the words from the narration, and Samuel Jackson delivers them well, and the clips of um, James Baldwin in his television appearances and stuff, which are really fascinating and compelling. But I think, I think as, a, as a film, the rest of the documentary is not that satisfying, per se. Like, it's a bit on the nose right. in, in spots, the associations Just it draws and stuff. Putting the imagery to those... Yeah, yeah, it feels a bit prosaic at, at times. Right. Um, but, yeah, it made me even more interested in, in James Baldwin. I, I watched this because I finished um, Go Tell It on a Mountain. Mm, that's a good book. Which is really good. Mm. I would definitely recommend the documentary for anyone interested in James Baldwin because you get enough of him that it, that it's uh, that side of it is really fascinating. But um, and finally, I watched Graffiti Bridge, <laughs> the uh, Prince classic, the Prince classic, the quasi sequel to Purple Rain, written and directed by Prince himself. Have you seen? Um, is it called Under the Cherry Moon? Yes, I love Under the Cherry Moon. Or is it Gigolo? His uh, Fellini-inspired film, um, shot by that cinematographer. What's his name? Michael Bellhouse. Oh, the oh yeah, yeah, um, Fassbender's guy. Hmm, Fassbender's guy, exactly. And Scorsese's guy. He actually went from After Hours to Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I want to watch that. Under the Cherry Moon is is the better of the two. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, I really enjoyed Graffiti Bridge. It's, it's like, it's as goofy as you'd expect as a narrative. Um, but it, I like the fact that its aesthetic is, uh, a, Prince's like eighties music video aesthetic for the entire film. Mm. So it's just like an orgy of colored lights and smoke machines. We all know how much you love orgies. <laughs> and also a very consciously artificial stagey aesthetic. So, like, they, everything looks like a set. Um, so, following on from his actual stage extravaganza, Sign of the Times, which is his previous concert film, mm-hmm. this kind of incorporates that style as well as um, the video clip style. And I, I just enjoyed the whole thing. That's all. That's all I watched. Whoa. Did you play the Did you play the interactive game Prince Interactive, the CD-ROM game? No, but I've heard of it. It has a graphic adventure somewhere to miss. Wow! Requiring the player to explore the many rooms in Paisley Park. <laughs> <laughs> it solves puzzles to collect the five pieces of Prince's symbol. He was like Bowie in that regard. And that he was interested in uh, video games, but decided to do it in the most like weird and half-assed way. Yeah, and also like early uh, online communities and um, fan yeah. clubs and stuff. I, have you watched The Beaches of Agnes? No, I haven't, but it's being shown 
Um, it's, it's a great film. One of our festival series, I might see it. I don't know if it's part of that or part of a TV series that she uses some of the same material as The Beaches of Agnes. There's a scene where her and Chris Marker hang out in Second Wife. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, it's one of the strangest <laughs> things. It's so funny. <laughs> I, think, I think it might be part of uh, the TV series, which I, I'm going to look up right now. Do you hear, like, their voices over the top? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We hear Vardas anyway. I'm, I, but you, me, you just see Chris Marker's avatar. It's really <laughs> strange. But Chris Marker had a lot of uh, interest in, that, in multimedia stuff like that, so mm. it doesn't really surprise me. Okay, it's, it's called uh, Agnes Varda from Here to There. Okay. Okay, so uh, first film, Summer Interlude, uh, Bergman film. Uh, very good. Mm-hmm. That's it. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. This is earlier than uh, Smiles of a Summer Night. It, it is. Yeah, it has this great sort of uh, tragic sense. Basically, all the early Bergman films are kind of the same. Okay. <laughs> I've discovered a lot of them feature um, flashbacks and like highly melodramatic like, people getting killed or dying and then flashing back on their wives um sort of proto um wild strawberries i guess um but i think this film is really good i think it benefits from having a female protagonist unlike um some of the other movies that i've talked about being part of early programs mm-hmm. especially like uh the one it, it especially seemed good in contrast to um to joy which i watched earlier um it's all about like female desire and I thought it was really uh, moving and strange there's this great bit that's like animated for no reason you're like why is this part of this movie oh really <laughs> yeah. that's interesting it's so odd it just comes out of nowhere and you're like what am I supposed to read this in the story of the film like what's happening <laughs> um but yeah it's definitely worth the watch this is this great tragic sensibility and uh it definitely anticipates like sort of the memory play of wild strawberries and and stuff like that so good stuff um, and then I watched Miami Vice, which is a Michael Mann joint from 2006, uh, which I think, uh, you know, fairly maligned updating of the classic TV series, which I think is fairly brilliant. Um, and it makes really great use of, uh, direct to DVD or sorry, direct to DVD. Uh, I don't even know why I said that. Um, <laughs> digital video cameras, uh, and has this, it does, yes. uh, really brilliant soundtrack, which is like. Uh, really of the moment, uh, and I think a way that really works, like it has a Lincoln Park song as one of the first moments of the <laughs> film, uh, and I think it's really brilliant um, and good, and has this great sensual sensibility and romantic touches that I like his sort of uh, concerns about surveillance and stuff like that, and uh, I really like this movie a lot. So I like how incoherent the story is too. Mm. It's a very odd film, but I, I really enjoyed it when I saw it. I was very surprised that I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have like no affection for the TV series at all. So, but regardless, okay. So moving on from that, uh, speaking of Agnes Varda, I watched The Gleaners and I, which is just one of the great films. I think you haven't seen it, right? No, I haven't. it's it's really brilliant. It's a it's a, it's a great sort of. Um, signaling of a new direction for her films to take and i think it's really brilliantly conceived and executed so definitely definitely you should watch it and i probably will later this year um, and i watched two other movies her smell uh alex noted marvel uh defender first mm-hmm. uh, alex ross perry's uh, latest film yeah yeah thank you um which is this brilliantly conceived and acted and directed film about a 
uh, sort of riot girlish musician played by Elizabeth Moss. And it's a film that... Famed Scientologist yeah. Elizabeth Moss. Thank you. Uh, and it's a film that really, I don't know, uh, is not afraid to show her being a monster, which I quite liked. Uh, it is really emotionally intense. It, it, it has this very peculiar structure where it's pretty much only like five really long scenes um, that are drawn out. But it, it's not a film that uh, necessarily wallows in the character's flaws and it offers her sort of this pathway towards redemption, which I thought was quite moving. Um, it's just really great. I think you would like it. Okay. You like other Rock, Alex Ross Perry movies, right? I, yeah, I've, I've only seen Listen Up, Philip, but I liked it. It's good stuff. Uh, and then I watched Police Story, one of your favorite films. No. A movie that you like. I like it, yeah. Uh, which I also liked. It's not my favorite Jackie Chan, of Jackie Chan. What's your favorite Jackie Chan film, then? Motherfucker? Police Story Part 2. Well, I'm going to watch that soon. Probably this week sometime. No, 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 no. I'm Project A Part 2, sorry. Not Police wow. Story Part 2. Wow. The Police Story series has never been my favorite. Just because you don't um, like cops. I like them, like, because they're still vintage Jackie Chan classics. I really but... enjoyed the uh, tone shifts this movie takes from, like, really goofy, um, almost like a Jerry Lewis comedy. Yeah, there's slapstick and then... <laughs> yeah, there's a bit where he gets three cakes in the face, which is so funny. Uh, there's this great scene where he has to answer all the... The phones, even even it has this like weird uh, <laughs> rape joke that's in yeah. it. You're like, what? Wait a minute, <laughs> what's happening? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Hong Kong cinema of that time, which in today's sensibilities uh, would not go down well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not so much the Jackie Chan ones; they're usually yeah. a bit milder. But certainly, a lot of stuff at the time is is a bit. Ooh, it's, okay. just, it's just strange for you. It's like this goofy bit where he's juggling all these photos. It's almost like I was raped, and you're like, "What?" So that, that sort of landed with a thud. But uh, the rest of it's very enjoyable. Some great stunts. The bit where he grabs onto the um, back of the truck is like breathtaking. Mm. And he slides down the the uh, thing that has all the lights on it. <laughs> they show it three times because it's such an impressive uh, stunt. I, I went to that mall. Wow. It's, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> did you take a photo with it? I did, yeah. Oh, nice. Why isn't that your Twitter avatar? Because it would just look like a random mall. <laughs> there you go. And I, I was like, the, the bit where he's like, they're like driving through the village. I was like, is this reference, Is did Bad Boys 2 reference this movie? Because <laughs> there's a very similar sequence in a... It's an amazing like setup. Yeah, and they're like, just destroying uh, this. I just building. feel like it's it, it like happens with so little build up and so like abruptly that it's hard to actually soak in. Yeah. How an ama- how much of an amazing sequence it is. I think that's some of the problems with the film that I have is like yeah. everything just. But he's still finding his director. Kind of cobbled together a little bit. Directorial voice, but, right? He is like certainly you, you, there's a comparison to be made uh, between both series. In fact, like the Police Story and Project A films. The first one. Is full of these amazing iconic stuff, and it's just this sort of brimming with invention. But they're kind of a little bit cobbled together, and uh, superficial as narratives. And then the second film, he gets more into uh, finding his voice as a director, and they're more narrative based and stronger on in that sense. Um, but arguably less iconic as with action set pieces and stuff. We should watch this Italian movie that he uh, directed the action for called Superman Against the Orient. Really? Yeah, it's a Italian <laughs> film. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, that's it.